greet you in the name of Jesus. It is a joy to worship together. I have been so blessed already. I hope you have been too. I plan to finish the study through the book of Philippians. So I invite you to Philippians 4. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a story about a fisherman sitting lazily beside his boat and just enjoying the day, enjoying the the picturesque scene as he looked out across the water. And along comes a very wealthy businessman and interrupts the fisherman's day and he said, why aren't you out there fishing? And the fisherman said, because I've caught enough fish for the day. He said, well, why don't you go out and catch more? What is enough? You're a fisherman. The fisherman said, well, what would I do with them? A wealthy businessman said, you could earn more. You could buy a better boat. Looked at his flimsy thing called a boat. You could go deeper into the waters. You could catch more fish. You could purchase a better net, a nylon net. You could make more money. Soon, you'd have a fleet of boats, and you'd be managing a a fishing business, and you could join some of the wealthy folks. And fisherman said, and what? What would I do? You could sit down and enjoy life. The fisherman said, what do you think I'm doing? And he looked out to sea. You're in Philippians chapter 4. This is the final message on Philippians. The title is The Secret of Contentment. And the the verse to highlight is verse 11. Whatever state I am, I have learned to be content. Is there anyone here that would be willing to stand up and say that? Just, just say, it, say it with Paul. Anyone willing to do that? Whatever state I am, I have learned to be content. Who will be first? Thank you, brother. That's a powerful, bold statement. Anyone else? Thank you. Contentment. I. Thank you. You're echoing a dear brother that said that. I believe it's possible to say that. Contentment, however, is a big subject. By God's grace, we're going to look at a few aspects of what I believe contentment looks like. Sometimes we limit contentment to this, the issue of finances, which is very, a very big part of it, but it's so much bigger than finances. There was a servant working in the kitchen of his master's house, and the master overheard the servant say, if I had five pounds, this was in a British setting, so pounds, uh, I, didn't know, I, did, I didn't do a conversion of what it would be in U.S. dollars, but 
If I had five more pounds, I'd be content. I'd be perfectly content, was the words. And the master walked into the kitchen and said, I have wanted to see a perfectly content man. He pulled out his, his uh, billfold and he gave him a, 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 a note that was worth five pounds. And he walked out. No, the, he, the servant generously from his heart thanked him. Thank you. The master walked out, and then he lingered. And he soon heard the servant say, why didn't I ask for 10? <laughs> I think it was Rockefeller that was once asked, how much is enough? And Rockefeller said, just a little more. Contentment is so much broader than finances and possessions. It's really, I concluded, about your relationship with God. I asked the question, is it possible to be in love with Jesus and fully devoted to him and be discontent? You can wrestle with that. Is it possible to be in love with Jesus and fully resting, resting in him and trusting in him and be discontent? To me, a contented person is at rest with Jesus. It doesn't matter what. And we, we went through uh, Philippians, and we saw the single mind and the submissive mind and the spiritual mind. I will be, a, I, I will be honest with you. I looked at contentment. La, the, last, the last message was on, on worry, the secure mind. And the subject was worry. That's in the first part of chapter 4. And it was very interesting to talk to some of you afterwards. And some of you said, I, I think I'm growing in the subject. And I, I think I am too. I, it, the older you get, you learn it does not help to worry. It doesn't help. And I want to believe that the issue of contentment, the older I get, the more experiences in life and the hard knocks of life that you labor through, I, I want to believe that I'm growing in the subject of contentment. There's a poem that I came across that just kind of uh, I, resonated with me. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer. But it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter I wanted, but it, sorry, it was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. So weather is an aspect. Are, are, you, are we content? I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged I wanted the presence, of my, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. That was written by a 14-year-old, by the way. 14-year-old understood some things about life. 
that some of us don't haven't grasped that some of us struggle grasping. You know that poem. I can relate to that. And as I was studying, I thought about my life. There's a lot of wise men that surrounded me and gave me advice. And one wise man once said, Brother Jim, I was in the middle of parenting, and he said, just enjoy every stage. Every stage is beautiful. And it is. And I'm learning that, I think. But why do I catch myself recently thinking, ah, in a few more years, I'll only have one set of tuition. You know, right now I have the privilege of two tuitions. I can support two set of teachers and two schools. And I'm looking forward to, and I'm thinking, blessed be the day when I, wait a minute. Have I learned to be content in whatever state that I currently am? Or is life just a little bit better when the next thing happens? Whatever that might be. I was talking to my daughter, Janessa. She's probably listening in. And talking about contentment. And I said, oh, once I'm finally free to go out in public, then. You know, I can't quite relate to that challenge. But every one of us has chapters of life. I don't care if it's being out of public or whether it's paying tuition or in the hospital or whatever it is. Have I learned, whatever state I am currently, to be content? It's big. We find ourselves in a culture that tends to be very discontent with our lot in life, with sometimes how we look. And our society does a master, is a master at making us discontent with uh, advertisement availabilities they can put in front of our face on the billboards and what and many other means uh, discontent on how we look on I've even seen billboards that try that that make an attempt to make us discontent with our spouse you ever see the divorce lawyers advertise it makes me sick more or less in the big cities they'll put a uh, the ideal man and the ideal woman, and un unrealistic man and unrealistic woman, and then they'll say, life is too short. Get a divorce. Uh, that's the epitome of, of uh, making or, or disgusting adverti advertisement. But whether it's in uh, a family or whether it's in ch church, whether it's a job, whether it's possessions, what someone described our culture with one word. He said, you can describe our culture with the word more. More money, more success, more power, more possessions, more gizmo, more gizmos, more uh, vacation, more free time. And we, what we have tends to pale in light of what we don't have. More. Recently, I read a study of a group of wealthy businessmen. This was in the, the setting was the Roaring Twenties, which uh, probably a few of us remember. But the Roaring Twenties did have some very wealthy men. And there was a group of men that would get together. And these men controlled more money than, than what was in the national treasury. And somebody did a, somebody did a study of, uh, of, those, of those men and the end of their lives. 
and it was amazing. I'm not going to go through them, or, but it was from suicide to poverty to uh, families uh, in disarray. And I don't think we would choose one of their lifestyles. The summary of the, of the study was they learned how to make big money, but none of them learned how to live. So, Philippians, we're at on the subject of joy. Our attempt was, through the study, is to examine our thoughts, examine our mind. Remember, the theme is joy. The, the sub-theme is our thought life, our mind, the way we think. So therefore, we titled it the single mind, the submissive mind, the spiritual mind, and the secure mind. The last message was on, the, uh, on worry, which was under the umbrella of a secure mind that is just stable, not double-minded. And this one is so closely related, and it's contentment. The, the passage we're going to look at is verses 10 to the end of the chapter. I'm going to read, them, read those verses shortly. Before we read it, I would like to just uh, give you maybe a, an overview of what, what's happening. Paul is basically saying thank you. So if you ever want to say thank you to somebody in a, in, a, in a real detailed way, maybe we can get some ideas from this. It was Paul's way of saying thank you. In this thank you letter to the Philippians was, are some tremendous nuggets of gold. Ultimately, a powerful testimony on contentment is tucked in his, his, uh, his thank you letter. He's in prison in Rome. He's chained to a guard. Epaphroditus comes to him with a, a love gift, a support gift, if you will, from the Philippian church. Paul had enjoyed various times before receiving letters from, uh, and support gifts from the Philippian church, but it has been about 10 years. So it's 10 years since he started the church. Right after he started the church, he went to Thessalonica, and that's where I think the Philippians were able to send him one or two love gifts of support. And he sends a thank you note back. So let's read it. Verses 10, and we're going to read right through verse 23. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. I'm going to stop a few times and just paraphrase it. Because some of the times in the King James here, it's maybe a little different than we would say it. He's basically saying, I am so happy that uh, you are able to support me again. That's basically what he's saying. Now in verse 11, he says, Not that in I speak in respect of want. In other words, I'm not talking about my need. That's not the issue. Because I learned in whatever state I am, Therewith to be content. Verse 12, I know both how to abound, how to abate, to be abased, and know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Notwithstanding, you have well done that you did communicate with my affliction. In other words, what he's saying there is. That was so kind of you to share in my ministry. Verse 15, but now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. 
So he singles them out there and says, you have done exceptionally well. Thank you. Verse 16, for even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my necessities. In other words, he must have been in Thessalonica and received a few love gifts from them. Not because I desire a gift, verse 17, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Stop. Did you, do we get that? He said, it's not about, oh, thank you, I needed the gift, thank you. He's saying, thank you, because I desire the fruit, the spiritual fruit that's going to be evident in your lives because of generosity. That's the end of the message. That's a powerful nugget of truth. Verse 17. Verse 18. But I have all and abound. In other words, I, I, am, I am very, my needs are very well met. I'm full. Having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Now all of a sudden, he just stops and says, this is a blessing to God. You gave a gift to me and God smells it. And he, just, he is indulging in the smell. It's a beautiful sacrifice. So that's a beautiful nugget there as well. Verse 19, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God... And our Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now what I'm going to do, don't turn to it, but I'm just going to go, I'm going to read uh, just... A few verses in, in 1 Timothy, then I'm going to come back and we're going to get three points out of the text that I, I just read. I just have to read this. On the subject of contentment, this is so beautiful. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world, and it is certain we'll carry nothing out. Having food and raiment, therewith let us be content. But they that will be rich... They that will be rich. In other words, they that want to be rich. And that's their pursuit. They fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. That was in 1 Timothy chapter 6. My dear mother had a note in her Bible, and that was one of the texts that was read at her, at her funeral, and that's probably why it is very special and very dear to me. Contentment. Godliness with contentment is great, great, great riches, great gain. I'd like to share three secrets of contentment. I'm convinced it is a secret that very few learn. Very few learn. We're going to talk about the secret of, of, of providence. We're going to talk about the secret of power. And we're going to talk about the secret of God's promise. Providence, power, and promise. God's providence, verses 10 through 12. Whatever state I am, Paul said, 
I have learned to be content. Because he saw the sovereign hand of God. He saw the fingerprints of God. Sometimes you have to just stop and think through life and see the fingerprints of God over your life. And it will it'll cause you to worship. I don't care what your chapters of life are. When you see God at work in your life, it will cause you to worship. And it'll cause you, your soul, to be still. It'll cause a stillness and a quietness versus a restlessness and a discontentment and a noise. It'll, it, it'll create stability and a solidness that you can, that, that you can sing, that your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. You know, when God moves in life, I, I think there's only two ways that he does it. You can help me think through this. But he always has the option of miracle because he's God. He can do it. He can do miracles whenever he wants to, and I hope we're a people that believe that. We don't believe that, we're not deists who believe in a God that he wound up creation and he sits back and he lets everything happen because of the laws of nature. But God is involved in people in a personal, intimate way so he can do miracles whenever he wants to. Let's stand at the Red Sea for a moment and watch it. Nothing natural. Let's, let's be a spectator for Bartimaeus, the blind man. He comes along. No, eye doctor. It was a miracle. Let's stand with the ten lepers. And with a word, they're healed. Let's stand with the children of Israel in the wilderness and watch the manna come down from heaven. That's not natural. That's a miracle. And God does miracles all the time. He's a miracle God. That's one way he works. There's another way. The other way is simply his providence. His providence uses, and I, I tried to imagine what it would be like to be God, and that's an impossible even thought to comprehend, but try to imagine being on the throne, being involved with seven billion, what is it, seven billion plus people in the world, and then all the situations that, that are surrounding them at the present moment. So you got seven billion people and probably at least a hundred situations and circumstances that are kind of unfolding simultaneously. So you have these hundreds and hundreds of billions and billions of circumstances that are happening within the laws of nature, within physics, within relationships, and, and he's orchestrating it all, and he's, he's sovereign. And that is a mind-blowing concept, but it's, it's real, it's reality. And I wonder what's harder for God, to work through providence or work through miracles? And maybe it's not right to say one thing's harder for God, and all things are possible with God, but think about God getting a job done through hundreds and hundreds of people. Think, think Joseph. Think through the story. That's providence. Hard situations, unfair situations. Providence at work to an end. That's powerful. Think Esther. 
at work within the laws of nature, within relationships, within people and the way they're going to respond. And God ends up saving a Jewish race. Powerful. Ruth. Your story. My story. Providence. God at work. It is an incredible subject that you'll spend a lifetime and you will never unpack at all. But the sovereignty of God. Every content person knows God is sovereign and he's orchestrating purposes. And when I am discontent, I really don't need somebody to come to me and say, Jim, you don't need 10 more pounds of money. Or you don't need... What you need to remind me of is when you see discontentment in my life, you say, Brother Jim, can you see the sovereignty of God? When I'm a discontent man, in whatever, whatever area of life, finances, possession, relationship, whatever it is, the issue is not the issue. The issue is... God. Paul said, it, does, it just didn't really matter. I followed through Paul's life. You know, Paul, you can read through the Bible and you can see a group of men just falling on him and giving him a big hug. You can read that in, in, in Acts 20. They fell on his neck and they kissed him. You can read about a Paul being extolled and lifted up and this is a godly man. And I'll bet it was pretty easy to be content. But then you read about Alexander the coppersmith. You read about his bruising and beating and his battering being stoned. In fact, let me just read a little summary of his life. Don't turn it, don't turn to it, but you could make a note of 2 Corinthians 11. I'm going to paraphrase it. He says, I had abundant laborings. In other words, tasks that were beyond me. I had countless stripes. In other words, I was beaten so many times I can't count. I was in prison numerous times. Five times scourged with 39 stripes, three times beaten with rods, one time stone left for dead, three times in shipwrecks, spent one and a half days stranded in the sea, numerous journeys, dangers with torrential waters and floods, dangers from robbers, dangers from Jews, dangers from uh, heathen, peril in the city, peril in the wilderness, peril at sea, peril of false, false brothers. Uh, I suffered from weariness. I suffered from pain. Pain. I suffered from watchings. In other words, I stayed up all night because I couldn't sleep. I suffered from lack of water. I suffered from lack of food. And then the, the crunch at the end was says, and in, amidst all that, the care of all the churches just rested on me. He's not writing from a palace. Well, he's writing from, uh, he's writing from Caesar's uh, Caesar's house in chains but look, what a man what a life and then he says I have learned I learned it it wasn't given to me it wasn't a miracle it wasn't just supernaturally infused into me I learned it that word learn should be a whole message of itself Jesus in fact uh, learned obedience through the things he suffered Learning. So here we are, learners together. Are we learning to be content? I can almost hear Paul say, Lord, I would clasp my hand in thine. I will never murmur. I will never repine. Content, whatever lot I see, since tis 
my God that leadeth me. Providence. Secondly, power. Verse 13. So providence, I mean, uh, providence comes from verses 10 and 11 and 12. Verse 13, simple verse, oft-quoted verse, but I want us to see power in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Question. Have you gotten familiar with God's power? Am I familiar with God's power or is that theology and not reality? Does our reality meet our theology of God's power, his supernatural power? Please allow me to take you back. Let's walk back to the cross. Some of you, maybe two years. Some of us, 20 years. Some maybe 40 years. Can you walk back to the cross? Can you see yourself empty, destitute, nothing, nothing with these hands I bring? Simply to the cross I claim. Walk back to the cross and do you, do you, do you remember the power? No, you probably didn't rise up from your prayer of dedication and surrender and whatever that prayer looked like and just bang, an overnight instant Apostle Paul. But do you remember a feeling of, of a burden lifted? Do you remember feeling uh, the guilt is gone? That's power. That's God's power. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. That supernatural power will follow you as you continue to live at the cross and as you continue to avail yourself to his service. It is beautiful. I'm convinced that, that so many times we do things on our own strength. That's why Jesus said in, in the flip side of this verse is in John 15 where Je Jesus himself said, without me, you can do nothing. And I don't know if you ever thought about coming to the end of life and looking at the sum total, sum total of life. And if it doesn't have Jesus, it is nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. But on the flip side, with Jesus, through him, through his power, we can do all things and the strength comes. That message, that verse would be a message in, it all its, in its own. Uh, we could highlight every verse. I, yes, even me, even you, I can do all things. Not just Paul. Paul, he's just sharing, the, he's sharing his testimony. But you, I can too. Jim can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. You can say it. So we could, we could, we could uh, park on the, the first word. We can park on the second word. I can. I can. Third word. We can park on. I can do. I, I can do. I can work out practical things day by day. I can do it. That word all. I can do all things. Maybe bunch those two together. Through would be a, a good place to park. Through Christ which strengthens me. We're back to an uh, uncomprehendable fact that, God, that we really can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. So he learned to do this in uh, poverty and he learned to do it when he had all his needs, needs met. 
And I'm wondering is if it's a lot easier to do it in adversity. If Paul wouldn't have had the list that I just read you, I personally am not sure he could say, I learned it. I can do it through Christ. I am convinced adversity is the classroom for contentment. Prosperity, some say that very few pass the prosperity test, but most pass the adversity test. All I'm saying, what kind of culture do we live in? What's our drive? We must be very careful. Revelation 3 should ring in our ears. You say you're rich, but really you're poor. You say you see, but really you need ISAV. You say... That was, the le- that was the message to the Laodicean and I, Laodiceans, and I think we, I, we find ourselves in a Laodicean culture. And I'm calling myself and I'm calling all of us to join together and allow God's word to, to speak to us on this issue of contentment. Just be you. Many people struggle with their own, their own who they are. Don't spend your time longing to be somebody else. Don't, their gifts, their place, their work, their, God made you. God made you individually. Have you ever learned to appreciate that? Or do you live your life just seeing other people and just comparing yourself to someone else? If you're going to enter in and continue in God's way, we need to just appreciate God's God's giftings, whatever he gave you, and live in a contented way in that. Be you. The last one is God's promise. And this one especially, since we already read the text, I'm just going to go right to verse 19. That's the, that's the focal point. The promise is, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So we saw God's providence, we saw God's power, and now we got the promise. My God shall supply all your needs. You know, we use that verse, but I wonder if we use that a little too flippantly. Can you give that verse to anybody, anytime? Can you give that verse to your neighbor who does not know God? God, yes, God will supply all their needs. I believe the condition is in verses 14 through 18. I, I really believe the contingent, they're contingent on that, that promise is contingent on generosity. Hear me out. Proverbs. Verse 11, 24 to 25. There is he that scatters and increases. Get get the picture? Farmer, seeds, scatters. Have a bag of seeds, end of the day, no seeds, gone. 
They're somewhere else. Not in his hands, not in his bag, not on his shelf. They're gone, out of his control. Impossible to retrieve. Yet, he increaseth. And the same verse goes on to say, and then there's those that withhold more than is meat, whatever that looks like. They keep too much. They've been given, but they keep it. They don't scatter it. And it tendeth to poverty. I don't believe the person that is holding with tight hands and tight fists is going to have their needs met. Did you ever see somebody that's just always spiritually needy? They cannot... I know, I I feel that way. We all feel that way, okay? We do feel very needy because we're at the cross. I'm talking about somebody that cannot live in victory. I'm talking about somebody that just, they just cannot get their needs met. I wonder, I wonder if there's a close relationship to He that soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly. He that sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. The context of this verse is right after the Philippians church. They were a poverty-stricken church. They They didn't have opportunity, the text said. But now they were somehow able to, to scrape together a meager gift And they were able to get a man from their congregation named Epaphroditus and almost an impossible journey geographically and said, go get it to Paul in prison. And they did it. And in that context, Paul was able to say, my God will supply all your need through Christ. Now, if I would have met Paul, he said he was a day and a half in the deep. And at 1.25 days, if I'd have came by in a little cruise ship and said, you got your knees met? We do have our chapters where it doesn't feel. They're dark days. Paul even said that one day I despaired of life. Uh, I want to be perfectly balanced. I'm not saying we should always feel. But I think there's a principle to the promise. The promise is the, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And I wonder what would happen if I would just be more of a scatterer. Do we all know our spiritual gifts? Maybe we should do a study on our spiritual, everybody, as as the six were standing here, I thought there's spiritual gifts right there. Everyone has it. My Bible tells me every man according to his gift, he's been gifted, she's been gifted. And So we all have our spiritual gift, whatever it is, whether it's mercy, whether it's encouragement, whether it's prophecy, whether it's teaching, whether it's, there's a whole list of spiritual gifts. So if we have identified in some degree, are we taking, are we scattering it? Are we using it? Are we, 
And we don't have to wait to say, hey, come, you do this. No, we, oh, there is a world that is waiting for our gifts. And I really wonder what would happen in all of our personal lives if we would just all just start giving whatever we have. Don't only think finances, just think you. Just give and give and give and give and give and give. My God shall supply all our needs through the, according to the riches. That, to me, is so encouraging and so powerful. You show me that kind of person, I'll show you a content saint. And I guess what? He will have joy. He will. She will. There will be joy there. There was a man that was very contented and very cheerful through a long period of trial. And somebody said, what's the secret? Tell me. He said, sure. It's how I use my eyes. How you use your eyes? Yeah. He said, I'd be glad to tell you. First, I look up to heaven and I think, huh, that's where I'm going. That's what really matters. Then I use my eyes and I look down to earth and I say, yeah, that's where I'm going too. That's where my body's going. But I only need about six foot that way and two foot that way. That's all I need. And then I look, I've looked up, I look down, and then I look all around. And I see all the people. And I see there, most of them are less fortunate than I am. Simple. That's what he said. I thought that was pretty neat. The last couple verses are salutations. We're out of time. I wanted to spend about five minutes on, on this point. I'm going to try to do it in a minute. I was disappointed this week in the political arena. There was the President of the United States refusing to shake a hand. Anybody see it? Okay. The President gives his State of the Union address and the person that didn't shake a hand. The epitome of disrespect. Can we be a people that salute, that greet, that just, we just love, love each other? That is woven through the scriptures. I can't, I don't know how many times our greet one another. And so let's be joyful people that greet one another, salute one another, uh, even from Caesar's household, that tells me that there were converts within the, in the <clears throat> confinement where, where Paul was. But can we put Philippians into practice? We, we walk through it together. Can we, can we have a single mind for Christ? Can we have a submissive mind for Christ, the mind of Christ? Can we have a spiritual mind that doesn't cut caught up minding earthly things can we have a secure mind that just doesn't worry and is content? Yes, we can, by the grace of God. Let's all stand for a closing prayer. <clears throat> Father, it's been a blessing together walking, walking together through Philippians. And 
we are challenged and we are humbled. We find ourselves in a very discontent world and we find ourselves often being discontent in various areas of our lives. Our desire, God, is to allow you to come into our hearts in a very real and powerful way and help us to see your providence, help us to see the power that you have, and also to claim the promise as we give and give and give. Thank you for your word. Your word's truth. Sanctify us by your truth. And now as we dismiss, make us a blessing to each other as we greet each other and also make us a blessing to a a lost and dying world in the days to come. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Song as we dismiss.